Socialist Republic of New York. New York. There's plenty of money in this country. It's just in the wrong hands. The Moss Show. Politics, current events, and just a bit of Judaism. Two guys that are always right. Except when their wives tell them they're wrong. You're listening to The Moss Show. Good evening, everybody. It's the Mash Show with uh, Nachman and Chesky. How was your week, Chesky? Really long. Really long. So, we're back from Israel. That was uh, a great uh, seven days. I think you only had like three in the country, right? You were only there for three days. In yeah, it was, it was a short time, but we got a lot done. A lot done. Yeah, we, we were able to bring... Um, some influential people to the land of Israel, to the to the to the to the homeland of the Jewish people. It was a great trip. We got to see some some crazy stuff. Um, we got to go see right outside Gaza. They have this training center, and uh, we were able to see where they train. Uh, it was pretty cool. It was like an entire. They built an entire city in the middle of the desert. It was the most amazing thing I've ever seen. I actually in my life. wasn't there. How was that? It was absolutely amazing. Absolutely amazing. You were able to go up, you know, uh, the uh, the spires that they have inside of the, um, you know, Muslims have um, um, towers on their mosques, um, and there are spires inside stairs. I mean, it's like a four-minute walk up the stairs. Um, it's about I don't know about five or six stories high. You see the entire city from there. And we also we went into the um, you know they talk about how it's the most uh, you know the houses are built on top of each other you see it they actually like the alleyways anyone that's ever been in Israel who's been to the old city or been to any city any any of the old cities inside Israel where the houses are close together um, they you know the, the roads are very narrow two three people wide maybe they actually went and covered them with like sheet metal and boxes. Um, to cover over the stuff that they're doing so they can move ammunition and stuff like that out. It's pretty wild. Pretty amazing. They also built a terror tunnel uh, to spec. These things are all to spec. Um, so we were walking on streets that were, that were literally to the millimeter what it was in the city in Gaza. So it, it was pretty cool. You know, obviously we took them, you know, tunnel tours, we took them to to the cave of the patriarchs. Um, um, you know, they got they got you know uh, one of the you know they got to see the 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 um, what was just uncovered by David Friedman. The you know he he opened up the bottom the bottom to the uh, entrance to the steps that go from the bottom of the of the hill. That Jerusalem is on the old city that goes up to the Temple Mount. Uh, it's called the Pilgrimage Road. It's probably the only. Tell us Christian. about the Pilgrimage Road. It's amazing. These are stairs that are they just, they've un- they're still uncovering near the top. Um, they have I think they're they're three quarters of the way done or half of the way done, but um, you can guarantee that you know to, to Christians this is very cool because unlike any other you know place in Israel where you could say, hey, maybe Jesus walked there, maybe he didn't. This is a place where Jesus definitely walked because he was around near the end of the second temple, and this was the way into the second temple. So this is the way you went in when you were Ola Regal, when, when the three times of the year that Jews went to the Temple Mount 
um, for the Jewish holidays, this was the way they went in. So, considering the fact that Jesus was a Jew during the end of the Second Temple era, the physical chances of him going up these stairs are near 100%. So, uh, you know, a lot of the Christians were very moved by that. Um, you know, it was it was a very nice it was a very nice trip. We brought Governor Huckabee and uh, the the chairman of the you know we had him on we had them on last week, uh, the chairman of the New York GOP and Nicole Meliotakis. So it was it was a great trip all around. Uh, you were able to join us for the last two days of the trip. So um, back, to, back we're back in New York now, and what do we what do we come back to? The same the same nonsense right before we left. You know the, the progressives are are progressing towards lawlessness once again. What do you have think you seen these videos? Have you seen these videos? I saw them. They're pretty wild. Explain explain what you saw in the videos. I saw basically a bunch of guys. Um, clearly, well, you don't actually you don't actually see who. So no one can claim racism here because there's no way to know. Some videos show white people, black, Hispanic. It's it's it seems to be it's a mixed. Looks like a pretty diversified group of New York City cops being harassed in Harlem. Very weird stuff. By right, but the, the people harassing are also mixed race. Yeah, I can't really figure out what's going on. So what exactly did this did happen? They're trying to arrest someone, and yeah, trying it, to arrest it, someone. And yeah. while they're trying to arrest someone, what happens? Um, so it seems that they're they're trying to arrest somebody, and the community around there seems to not be liking the arrest for some reason. It seems it's a legitimate arrest. No one's claiming that it wasn't, not that I've seen. And it seems that they decided to, I mean, the cops were soaked. Buckets of water, the actual buckets were thrown at them. Um, I know the SBA and, and, and the unions are going nuts. And the mayor, of course, what does he say? Oh, our, whoever shows disrespect to our cops, they're going to be in trouble. Like, really? This is a, this is a mayor who, who shows the most disrespect of, of any mayor we've had in a very long time. And I, I'm not, you know, I'm not including, you know, the Democrats before Giuliani. Dinkins, from what I understand, never showed disrespect to cops. He just had no idea what he was doing as mayor. Um, you know, Ed Koch respected the cops. I, I just don't understand. De Blasio has one of the most highly disrespect. The cops tur at, at, at funerals turn their backs to him. I saw it with my own eyes at a fire at a fireman's um, funeral, where the firefighters and the cops completely disassociate the mayor with anything having to do with their profession. They hate him, um, and it's not because he's a Democrat. A lot of these a lot of these cops are Democrats. Um, it's it's just he has no respect for them. I, I've spoken to friends of mine that are cops. The cops that are on his detail don't like him. Hate his wife. Hate his family. Hate the people that are around him because they, they they the people that he surrounds himself with are all cop haters. Um, and what's funny is most of the NYPD are, are minority. Very few white cops left. Very few white firefighters left. Um, I, I I don't know where this comes from. It's it's a an in, inbred hate that progressives have for for law and order. So they who do they get out on it? They get out on cops. It's pretty wild, in fact. Um, 
I don't uh, do you remember that funeral a couple of years back that when de Blasio came all the cops on this on on the scene turned their back on him? Yeah, that's what I'm it's 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 um yeah. They feel like because they feel like he's abandoned them. Yep. And it's Pretty it's getting much. worse and worse. Yeah, listen, I, I, I don't know what the solution is. I mean the, the solution the solution is we get do they to not do they not do they not want there to be law and order do they not realize that the cops prevent them from getting shot and killed yeah I mean it's it's um it's 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 just odd yeah. I don't really understand I don't really understand how a person can even act that way towards a police officer. It's just strange to me. It's it's very strange. And not only that, but to be quite honest, who's to know what was in that water? And let's say that cop let's say there was acid. Let's say there was bleach. Let's say let's say um let's say I don't know, let's say there were rocks inside the bucket when it was tossed at them. I mean that's that's that the, in well, my the opinion, cops are very lucky. It could have had their their lives could have really been in danger. And in my and in my opinion, they would have been completely right to turn around, draw their weapon, and start firing. You don't throw things at cops. If you feel the arrest is wrong, if you feel that the arrest is wrong, then then do something about it. Then 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 you know. So. Um, tonight, we're, uh, you know, we'll, we'll talk about this a little bit later, but right now we have, for a short time, we actually have, you know, it's actually a very interesting topic, especially going into the, uh, you know, for, for some of the things that have been going on lately with the president. Um, China's been coming up again a lot, um, especially with, um, with some of the um, trade deals that have been going on. China's been on and off again with the president. I know that a lot of people that have patents in this country have been up in arms about what China's doing. Um, we'll, we'll intellectual discuss, property theft. Yeah, intellectual property theft. Um, Israel, actually, it's interesting. You know, uh, uh, Israel has very good relations with two countries that America doesn't have such good relations with, which is Russia and China. So on the air right now, we have with us Curtis Ellis, who is the, uh, from what I understand, the nation's expert on China and the dealings that we have with them to the extent where he's advised the president. He is the senior advisor for America First Policies, which is the policy arm of America First PAC, which is the recognized PAC of the presidential campaign of Donald Trump. Um, so we, uh, I think I got... Uh, Mr. Ellis's credentials correct, but Mr. Ellis, you tell us a little bit about yourself, if you can. Uh, yes, it's really great to be here and to join you all this evening. Thank you for having me on. I served as senior policy advisor on the Trump-Pence campaign in 2016. <clears throat> I've been working on these issues around China and the security threat it poses, uh, economic and security threat it poses to the United States of America and the entire West for 20 years now, and following my p 
position with the Trump campaign. I served on the transition committee, the presidential transition team, and served in the Labor Department as a special advisor to the U.S. Secretary of Labor. I was working on the International Labor Affairs desk, uh, representing the United States in Geneva and elsewhere. The, the portfolio of the International Labor Affairs is enforcement of trade treaties, and we work with many international organizations, from the International Labor Organization to the G20, <clears throat> G7, outfits like that. So uh, now I'm with America First Policies, which uh, you got that right. It's the policy arm of the America First Action Super PAC, the officially recognized uh, uh, PAC, supporting the right. president. America First policy supports the legislative agenda and right. the policies of the Trump administration. So basically you guys are like the, you guys are playing like the outside support for the Trump administration and for the campaign as far as policy and messaging goes. Correct. We were involved in the fight to confirm Judge Kavanaugh, Justice Kavanaugh, to make Judge Kavanaugh into Justice Kavanaugh. We supported uh, various other cabinet nominees, Gina Haspel for the CIA, uh, the others, and we were there in the fight over the tax, uh, the tax cut act, and um, the now currently we're up to our eyeballs in the U.S.-Mexico-Canada agreement having been fighting over immigration before that. So there's always a fight. That's what we love about President Trump. There's always a fight. This guy doesn't sit back. He never rests. There is so much to be done, and he never stops doing it. So that's good. So this trade agreement that you're dealing now, that's to replace NAFTA? That is correct, yes. Uh, President Trump promised on the campaign trail to get rid of NAFTA. It's interesting to note that Barack Obama promised the same thing on the campaign trail and never did it. President Trump promised to get rid of NAFTA, and he has done that. He has renegotiated oh, wow. a much better deal, and it, it now remains for Congress to approve it. So wait, so Curtis, if I understood you correctly, President Obama also promised to replace NAFTA, and he never did it? Yeah, it's a very interesting story uh, that um, I'm glad uh, you, you, you put a finer point on that. You see, in the Ohio primary, 20, uh, how quickly we forget, 208, 2008, when uh, Barack Obama was running against Hillary Clinton in the primaries, when he hit o Ohio, he understood, like President Trump understands, and anybody with two eyes and two ears can understand, the the voters in Ohio hate NAFTA. It's destroyed their jobs. It's destroyed so much of the industry in this country. And Obama was making noises that w if I'm elected president, I'm going to revisit this thing. It's no good. And he, of course, reminded everybody that Hillary Clinton's husband is the president who signed it and pushed it through. So, and it's what's interesting here is that when he was saying that when Obama was saying, I'm going to renegotiate or get rid of NAFTA, this is a rotten deal. He didn't say rotten because that's not the way he talks. Right. But when he was saying that, his chief economic advisor, someone you see on TV a lot, his chief economic advisor by the name of Austin Goolsby, and you'll see Austin yes, Goolsby. Austin Goolsby, yeah. Austin yeah, Goolsby. you see him on TV a lot. I think he's paid as a Fox contributor. He is. He was. Yeah. 
Yeah, Barack Obama's chief economic advisor on the campaign. And it's documented. Goolsby was on the phone to the Canadian embassy telling them, don't pay any attention to what Obama's saying. It's just campaign rhetoric. He's never going to do anything about this. So was, was Goolsby saying what candidate then President Obama um, actually felt? Or was it that Obama saw the plight of those in Ohio and, and, and made a promise that he realized later that he could not keep or that he was just full of crap from the beginning? He was full of crap from the beginning. Goolsby was, <laughs> was saying what, what Obama really meant. And he was very he, he Goolsby was the honest one. He was the honest one. And and, and that's it, the difference, by the way, between President Obama and President Trump. The President Obama can be said, as far as a legacy um, point of view goes, that he was always full of garbage and really was all about the politics and never really had any consistency in in his policies besides pushing a liberal progressive agenda and trying to create as much racial tension as possible in this country. Yeah, well, I, I think that's a fair assessment. <laughs> I, I'm just curious. NAFTA, NAFTA wasn't a Reagan thing. It was, I think, a, a Bush-Clinton thing, but, uh, uh, George H.W. Bush. But it started with Reagan, and Reagan ran on it in the 80s. Reagan, Reagan ran on the, the, the original version, which is just Canada and the United States was a free trade deal between Canada. Did, did people in Iowa hate that also, or was just once they added Mexico because of the farming? It's because it's when they added Mexico because of the radical differential in wages and the standard of living. Uh, right. Canada and the United States are natural trading partners. And going back to probably the 1930s, the automobile industry, the automotive industry of Canada and the United States have been integrated. Uh, there's an engine plant in Windsor, Ontario, right across the river from Detroit, that's been part of the automobile, the big three supply chain forever. And you look at the, the wages and the working conditions and the culture and the rule of law, the, uh, the, 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 the legal framework, it's it's all of the Anglo uh, tradition, uh, the Western right. Anglo uh, uh, Western Anglo tradition. Whereas you go to Mexico, you're you're dealing with the Napoleonic Code or something like that. It's it's an entirely <laughs> different legal system, and it's the big difference in wages that's the real killer. You, you really? have people getting paid a dollar an hour, whereas in Canada I, they're I earning wish. the same thing we do. You're talking about legal systems. I wish that we had half of their legal system. You, you know what happens if you're found to be illegal in their country? Yeah, right. There you go. Uh, you know, it's you a don't, minimum 10-year sentence. It's you like wish you had due process. Yeah. Curtis is like the most honest, realistic, pragmatic people I know. When you it, say something positive about another foreign country, he's like, yeah, we should, we should, we should take that part. I mean, they, <laughs> right, they exactly. Have, their southern border, if not for the fact that they literally march the, the Guatemalans through their country into our country, they, they, they have a very – you can't buy land in Mexico unless you're Mexican. I mean, they are one of them. they have built into their constitution. It is probably one of the most racist, um, um, xenophobic constitutions on the planet. 
It's highly nationalistic. Yeah, it's it's highly nationalistic. But it's and not even for, nationalistic because if you're, if, it's not you can't become a Mexican. Right. 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 Well, look, they understand. Now, I've traveled in Mexico and in Central America extensively and pre-NAFTA and, and post-NAFTA. And I got to tell you that they suffered, the Mexican people suffered under NAFTA as well. It destroyed their agricultural sector because the subsidized corn from the United States was dumped into Mexico, was sent into Mexico. That you, we, we subsidize our farmers here. And that right. corn was then exported to Mexico, and it wiped out all of the peasants. It, it wiped out the small farmers down there who for probably a thousand years have been poking a stick in the ground, planting corn, and then taking siesta for the rest of the day. And they were happy. They had a piece of land, they grew corn, they ate it, and, and they were fine. They got wiped out, and they all started heading north. Uh, heading north to the Maquiladora plants on the U.S.-Mexican border on the Mexican side and heading north to be gardeners and landscapers here in the, and kitchen so workers in our so restaurants. Who help? So who does NAFTA help? The elite. It, it helps the upper corporate, uh, the corporate class, the, the C-suite corporations. It uh, destroyed the small businesses in Mexico because they had a protected market. Uh, this is a, a, a long, complicated discussion, but they had a very protected market in Mexico, going back to what you said, that it's a, it was a very rigged system down there, but there was a certain class of small business people that, that did well under that. They wow. produced and sold to the Mexican market. No one else was allowed to sell to the Mexican market. When they opened their market via NAFTA, they got wiped out. It's like I was talking to someone from Hungary the other day. Uh, they, what happened in Hungary is there were small companies, Hungarian companies, they were making bread, making paper boxes, cardboard boxes, making sugar, making this, making that, serving the Hungarian market. After the Berlin Wall came down, Germany came in, bought all those companies and shut them down and started supplying the Hungarian market from Germany, from the German companies. So how did that help the Hungarians? You've got to ask. It doesn't. Which comes so, Curtis, comes tell us like a little bit for our listeners. A lot of our listeners are not exactly. Some of them are actually very savvy businessmen, but many of them are not very educated on these issues. Some of them are, of course, but some of them are just salty or you know, people who really been successful through nothing, but don't have a economic education and sense like you do. So, explain to us how is the new plan the USMCA, right? Is that what they're calling it? Yeah, yes, it's a tongue twister. It's a tongue twister because, like, YMCA, I start feeling that there's going to be songs soon about it, you know? Exactly. Um, what exactly is it going to do for the American people? It's going to create thousands of jobs. Uh, there's been a couple of studies, economic studies, and a poll of the a survey, <clears throat> pardon me, of the automotive industry, and it's expected to create 176,000 jobs in the automotive industry just in the first five years. But that's after here. How about, how about in Canada and Mexico? Does it help them as well? Well, it helps them, yes, because it, it increases for the first time in a trade agreement, it has labor standards, enforceable labor standards that the, again, the Mexican situation, it's, it's 
really a quasi-fascist setup there. There were no independent labor unions. The labor unions were an arm of the government, and it was impossible for the workers to organize one because the system was so rigged. They had to pass, and as part of this USMCA, Mexico adopted new labor laws and made it legal to create independent unions and uh, made it easier for them to organize, for the workers to organize. And they will be enforceable under the terms of this agreement. So if they don't live up to that, they'll be, uh, they'll be in violation of the, this agreement. In addition, for the first time, in a, la- in a trade agreement, what it specifies... Pardon me? If, they, if they violate, they can be sanctioned and they lose their access to the American market. Gotcha. And for the first time in a trade agreement, there's a stipulation in there that 40% of the labor that goes into making an automobile that can be sold tariff-free in the United States, 40% of the labor component in that vehicle must be paid $16 an hour. The immediate impact of this will be to create jobs in the United States because $16 an hour is far above the wage, the median wage or the minimum wage in even the median wage in Mexico. So I don't think they're going to want to start paying people $16 an hour in Mexico and I think the Mexicans would be afraid to pick up their paycheck because they might get hit over the head by some robber <laughs> or bandito but so but seriously it will incre- it'll it, it's an incentive to bring jobs north to the United what States and to raise the wages in Mexico as well. Interesting, Bill. So, like, but what are the actual average wages right now of a of, a, of an auto worker in this country? They're getting paid less than sixteen an hour. No, no, they're not. You see, the auto workers in this country are being paid thirty-five, at least in the old days, uh, with right. benefits and everything. They were well yeah, over forty dollars an hour. Dollars. Yeah, which is why the whole auto uh, a large parts of the auto industry relocated to Mexico after NAFTA, which is what NAFTA was all about anyway. It was, a, it was not a trade treaty. It was an investment treaty, and it, and it made, the, made Mexico safe for American investment. After NAFTA, so much of uh, the automobile industry moved from Michigan to Mexico. As, as Donald J. Trump said on the campaign trail when he was campaigning in Michigan, it used to be cars were made in Flint and you couldn't drink the water in Mexico. Now cars are made in Mexico and you can't drink the water in Flint, Michigan. And so that we, really is a true statement, and, and it encapsulates what happens when we lose our jobs and lose our industrial base. We lose our tax base, and uh, the tax base is what pays for things like uh, clean water infrastructure. So, like, are the auto industry is the auto industry going to see um, a decline in job weight in like the wages, or are they just going to create new lower paying jobs? Well, unfortunately, this has been going on now for some time. The United Auto Workers uh, have been adopting these two tier wage scales, these two tier contracts that the existing auto workers, the people who've been on the job for 30, 40 years, are paid at the wage that they've always been earning, that $38, $40 an hour plus benefits, whereas new hires can be paid much less, and uh, $16 an hour. So 
that has been going on for some time. Uh, unfortunately, the automobile manufacturers haven't even been doing that. They've chosen instead to invest in Mexico and in China, where they pay far less than $16 an hour. And that's the other important component of the U.S.-Mexico-Canada agreement, is that under the old NAFTA, 40% of a car that was uh, that could be that could enter the United States from Mexico tax-free, tariff-free, duty-free. Forty percent of that automobile could be made in China. It could have brake shoes, windshields, whatever, seat covers, seats, onboard computers could all come from China and be assembled in Mexico and then shipped into the United States, no taxes, no tariffs, no nothing. No Under the new agreement... breaking down. Pardon me? I said, no wonder our cars are always breaking down. <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. They so, use so, technically, so, so technically, when, they, when, when everyone says that NAFTA was, was the culmination of Ronald Reagan's vision of free, free, free economies you know, coming together... It, that's maybe what it was sold as, but it, clearly that's not what it was. No, not at all. And let me just, uh, yeah, let me tell you exactly how it's the antithesis of what Ronald Reagan stood for. First of all, let me just finish up on this. So under the new agreement, 75% of the car must be made in North America. Uh, 25% can come from somewhere else, but 75% rather than 60%, up from 60%, must actually be made in Canada, the United States, or Mexico. So it increases the threshold, increases the local origin, the rules of origin, as they call it, in the term of art. But here's the other thing, to your point, a very interesting change in the new agreement. And we have to thank the U.S. Trade Representative, Bob Lighthizer, for drawing this and driving this other part of the deal. He's been an outspoken critic of this, uh, of, of the old NAFTA, had rules in it, it, which created an international arbitration court, if you will, an inter international arbitration panel. So let's say I'm company, I'm multinational company X, I'm Acme, yeah, I'm the American Acme Corporation. And I invest in Mexico, but I'm afraid that the Mexican government might nationalize my business because they have a habit of doing that. They're left-wing revolutionaries. They're crazy. They're whatever they are. They're, uh, and they're, they, they like to steal things. And if they nationalize my company or a part of it, if I try to take them to court in Mexico... Uh, good luck with that, because the courts are rigged, the courts are dirty, the, the bribery is rampant, and it's not going to work. So what NAFTA did is it set up this international arbitration panel where three judges selected by who knows who that are basically corporate lawyers and sit in Geneva somewhere will be the court that I would go to if I feel my property rights have been violated by Mexico. Now, that sounds reasonable. Okay, you know, that's good. It makes it safe to invest in Mexico. Well, Bob Lighthizer, our trade representative, said, what are we doing? Why is the American government, why are American taxpayers paying to create a situation that makes it safe for companies to invest 
in Mexico, right? If, if this company wants to invest in Mexico, it can buy insurance if it's afraid that it's going to get ripped off. Why are we underwriting its insurance? The great advantage of doing business in the United States of America is our rule of law, is our respect for private property. That's our comparative advantage. Why are we giving that away by creating this international system that really nullifies the advantage of investing in the United States instead of one of these other Third world right. hell holes. I mean, it's, 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 it's why, you know, this is what happens, I guess, when you have economic illiterates being, be, becoming president. But thank God we have Trump, who is by far, whether you agree or disagree or believe or disbelieve, the amount of times he's gone bankrupt, the amount of businesses he's destroyed, whatever it is, the guy still understands business because it's what he's done his entire life. Um, you know, he, he understands business and he also, and he also understands really nationalism, team. national right. identity. See, this is a matter of patriotism. The right. other, or the flip side of the coin is, why would we do that? Why would we create these international panels that nullified the advantage that America has as a place to do business? Oh, the reason is it's the ideology of globalism. We want to create a one-world system where there is no difference between Monterey, Mexico, and Flint, Michigan, where there is no difference between Shenzhen, China, and Chicago, oh, good Illinois. Segue. Good segue, because we're we're we, 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 we told our audience we're going to have you on talking about China. So they said Shenzhen. So, so now, now that the president is basically, um, I think from what I understand, this, this new North North. North American trade, I don't want to call it NAFTA. So uh, the new agreement <laughs> is, 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 is finishing up. It's on its, it's on its, uh, it's on, it's at the end of it now. It seems that I think Mexico's already passed it. I think yep. we're, waiting for, we're waiting for our Congress to pass it, right? I think Canada's That is correct, it. yes. We're hoping so to it, see a vote in October, September, October. Right. Yeah. So, so, so it just takes, it needs, because in, in the United States, the, you know, we have rule of law. And because it's a treaty, it needs to go through the proper Senate, Senate, um, uh, uh, committees and it, and that's the same for Canada. Though I think Canada did Canada pass it already. Uh, not quite yet, but, uh, yeah, but they're they're, also, they're very close to it. They they've got some elections coming up up there. It's right. a very weird system. Yeah, they have they have a weird they have, they have a parliamentary system similar to Israel, um, yeah. um, which doesn't work. Which is why they should get rid of it. <laughs> um, parliaments yes. don't work. Say that again. Um, yeah, um, um, I always tell people when people ask me what's the difference between America and England, Israel. I said because we both came, from, we both came from English rule. It's very simple. We took the house of we took the, we, we we structured our government like the House of Commons, and they structured theirs like the House of Lords. Um, <laughs> um, so so you have so yeah so 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 China. China is a very big problem. I know everybody likes to buy cheap cheap um, you know stuff from China, Amazon. Is a huge seller. I, I I get Amazon three four times a day. I got boxes all day. A lot of the stuff. Oh my gosh! I, though a lot of the stuff I've been checking a lot. A lot of stuff in the last seven eight months has not been made in China. It's interesting. Been, it's been being made in a lot of other countries. I've never Costa Rica, um, Bangladesh. Um, I've gotten made in the United States some toys recently, which was wild. Um, I've seen um, a lot of Middle Eastern countries. Um, Jordan. I've seen some stuff being made in Jordan. 
um, uh, it, it's been it's been clearly these companies are responding to the tariffs against China in a very fast way. But it's more than just the unfair, um, you know, you know, uh, practices of of labor. But they're actually stealing our stuff flat out. You want to speak about that? Yeah, as uh, the uh, it's been said, uh, Secretary of State Pompeo has said it. Uh, the Chinese, famous Chinese uh, artist Ai Weiwei, has said it. the The dispute with China fundamentally is not about trade. It's about two incompatible political systems. Look, China does not respect rule of law, and it doesn't respect private property. Here's a newsflash, everybody. China is ruled by the Communist Party. Communism does not really recognize uh, private property. The government can do what it wants, and it does. It can seize property. It kicks, land, it kicks peasants and people off the land, seizes the land, will build a factory, and then offer the factory free of charge to a company it wants to woo to relocate to China. And then further, as uh, we've, we've heard described by Larry Kudlow, the director of the White House uh, National Economic Council, and many others, it's absolutely clear that they force companies to hand over their blueprints. So an American company doing business in China must take on a Chinese partner, majority shareholder in the company. The Chinese company, the Chinese partner, will have 51% of the stock of this joint venture. And as majority shareholder, they ask the American businessman, the American company, to hand over the blueprints. And so they're, they're taking the crown jewels. They're taking our family jewels of technology. And then what happens? It's only a matter of time before this Chinese majority partner sets up a, sets up a competing enterprise all on their own using the technology that we've just given them. And they eventually drive the joint venture, meaning the American partner, out of business because the Chinese national company, 100% owned by, the, by, a, by a Chinese uh, citizen, is competing directly against this American company's partnership. So they do that. Then they use cyber espionage on a regular basis to steal uh, what they can't, what we don't give them, they steal. And every company in China is, under Chinese law, required to cooperate with the Chinese Communist Party and the Chinese government and the Chinese military. So when you hear about companies like Huawei, which is the big telecommunications company... Well, well, a, while you're saying that, I just, as, as of, uh, I, I was just told this, that as of uh, today or yesterday, it depends on, on how you look at the day because of Israel, um, Israelis that are in the army, I don't know if you're familiar, but Israelis all have their cell phones on them, it's the law. Soldiers actually have to have their cell phones on them. Um, they are no longer allowed to bring on any military base a phone that has any Huawei um, hardware. Wonderful. Amen. Well, that's great. That's, that, that, that's good news because China we and Huawei... We were talking about that today, Curtis, earlier today. I was hoping we were going to talk about that. Yes, again, that's a very good segue. Let me just say, as part of that segue, it's a good thing they don't, because right now a high-ranking executive in Huawei is being held in jail 
in Canada waiting extradition to the United States on charges that Huawei was violating the sanctions against Iran. They do business with Iran. So China's interests are in sowing all kinds of chaos everywhere. They do business with Iran. They're one of the biggest customers for Iranian oil. They're very close to the Iranian regime. And every Huawei phone is a potential, if not uh, more than potential, an active uh, tool of espionage, uh, of cyber you... espionage. So you do not want to bring those onto a military base unless you want the Chinese knowing what you're doing, where you're doing it, which, and listening and watching. Which, compa which companies use Huawei technology? Well, no, there are some American companies, but that is going to be phased out rather quickly. Uh, the, big, the big controversy or the big fight now is that Huawei is a leader in 5G technology, the next generation of Internet. And if they grab that market and start installing the backbone of the next generation of Internet, China and the Chinese Communist Party will control the information infrastructure, the data infrastructure of the world, and then it's game, set, match. We're done. Uh, because they will listen in on everything and control everything, and at the flip of a switch, they could black out entire cities, they could shut off ATM machines, they could uh, wipe out your access to your bank accounts. It's just, the, the, it's unimaginable what could happen. But let me just say that in Israel, the other aspect of what's going on in Israel and China is very disturbing, and it's very important, is that China is using the money that it gets from selling all that cheap junk that's filling up storage lockers all over America that every time you go to the store you see every coffee maker and everything is made in China. The money they're getting from American consumers, they're using to build infrastructure around the world. They call it the Belt and Road Initiative. And they are building and improving port facilities in key places around the world, and the one of the most important one is in Haifa. They have made a $2 billion, or they have made a deal with the government of Israel to make a $2 billion investment in the port of Haifa. And as a result of that, the United States Navy has notified Israel that if they go forward with this, if, Chinese, if the Chinese take over this, the port of Haifa in 2021, as the agreement currently calls for, the U.S. Navy may well be forced to stop doing port calls and hosting joint U.S.-Israeli naval drills out of the port of Haifa because of the fear wow. of espionage. Wow. That's huge. Yeah. I'm, assu I'm assuming that's going to kill the deal. Uh, right now, uh, the uh, reports are out uh, that uh, is, Israel is reviewing this investment deal right now. Just last week, the United States Congress passed the National Defense Authorization Act, and in there is specifically written into the law, which, which funds all of our military operations and uh, construction and everything to do with the American Defense Department, and aid programs, there's a sense of the Senate expressing the concern over this Haifa deal, uh, this Chinese port deal with Haifa. And as a result of that, uh, the Senate has made it very clear. And the government, and I know that John Bolton and others have spoken, and Mike, uh, Secretary of State Pompeo, have spoken to the Israeli government about our concerns with this. Uh, the 
the the Israeli government is uh, reviewing this deal very closely. The uh, Israel's national security cabinet is reported to be revisiting the deal between the Israeli transportation ministry and the Chinese firm that has committed to spending $2 billion on the Haifa port. Now, China is saying, oh, this is just political. The United States wants to stop the Chinese from cooperating with Israel. No, this is a very real security concern. And uh, this is not the only security concern that's, that's going on over there. Uh, the, um, we have a uh, we have reports of other Chinese investments in in Israeli infrastructure, uh, whether and, and Israeli corporations, whether it's Truva, the the big uh, dairy industry over there, the Tel Aviv Jerusalem Railway. Uh, they want to invest in a Tel Aviv Elat railway. They are looking at building a port facility in Ashdod. They, meaning the Chinese, and uh, you have uh, a lot of people that are raising uh, ra- raising concerns about this. Um, yeah, my brother is working on a project. They're using Chinese equipment to dig these tunnels. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah. Well, look. Um, so. Uh, what we have is Dr. Harel uh, Manashri, uh, head of the cyber department at Holon Institute of Technology. Uh, he was a former official in Shin Bet. He said the Beijing regime aspires to position China as the leading world power and is taking advantage of uh, the U.S. U.S. really kind of stepped back under Obama. And... Uh, he advises that uh, there is no real private sector in China. These Chinese companies come across and pretend that they are private companies, but they're all they're directly or indirectly controlled by the Communist Party. Right. And they have to follow the Communist Party line. Now, look, if you think China is going to provide, uh, if, if, the, if China prevails, their goal, and it's been stated, is to displace the United States as the world's leading superpower, as the and world's only be. superpower. But what's funny is, it should be. That should be every nation's uh, right. uh, uh, aspiration. But our aspiration as Americans should be to, to make sure that we remain it. Exactly. There you go. I mean, that, you're exactly right. And, and every American company should not be doing business with a nation that says, well, we want to make the United States second or third rate power. So uh, the question then becomes, if China succeeds in becoming the world superpower, do you think they will provide Israel with the type of defense uh, support or equipment that the United States does? I I really don't think so. Right. So. I mean, that, that there there is Israel. Israel has an interesting relationship with China, um, due to the fact that um, th- there was a study done. And that was a study, but I, I know about maybe about a decade or fifteen years ago, um, they realized that they had an entire country of billions of people that were not anti-Semitic because they knew nothing right. about Jews. No, it's serious. There was a tiny Jewish community in Shanghai. Yeah, it was, it, was a, it was a joke. It was a joke. Yeah. Um, no. um, and, and it was basically China and Korea. Now remember, there, there are, people don't know this. Koreans and Chinese are the exact same people. It's, it's, a, it's an imaginary line. Um, right. It's, they, they, Koreans consider themselves Chinese, 
and the Chinese consider Koreans to be Chinese. They are all Chinese, and and they they consider they can they actually like the business aspirations that they see Jews having. And oh yeah, there, yeah. There was there was a huge push to get China to become an ally of Israel, specifically because they figured, however many Arabs there are, there are more Chinese. And if we can get them to become allies and pro-Israel and pro-Jewish, then we are always going to have this huge ally. Now, I don't think it's worked out that well, because at the end of the day, they're a bunch of communists, and they, they, their voting record in the UN is all over the place with Israel. But, but it is the Talmud. The Talmud is actually translated into both Korean and Chinese after English. That's the next language it's translated into. So, so it's, it's a very interesting... Um, um, relationship that they have, but as far as security goes, security should trump everything else. And if 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 if, if China is using business as a military weapon, which America doesn't do, I mean, I think under Trump, we're starting to see Trump going, guys, everybody else is is using economic warfare. Maybe we do. We need to do that also. Maybe maybe that needs to be in our in our in our quivered that that we're going to use our economic power to. To, to push our agenda. And I think it's no, right exactly right. No, and that's what President Trump is doing, and that's what President Trump says. You know, it's very interesting. Every other nation on earth approaches trade as what can we get to raise the standard of living of our people, of our nation's citizens. That's what every other country but the United States has been well, doing. Now to, under President we Trump, to. we're starting to do that. Right. Uh, again, prior again. to President Trump, the American approach was, what can, in these negotiations, what we're going to do is create a global economy. What's good for the global economy? Whereas well, the, the other people the, on the other side of the negotiating table is, what's good for my country? Well, the re, the, the, I mean, there was a real, you know, there was a real re, good reason for it. It was, to, it was to promote freedom. The problem was is that um, the, we, we, would, we would abide by the deal on our end and get completely screwed over on the other end where they were not promoting right. freedom. <laughs> right. They weren't living up to their end of the deal. So you would have and, a, a agreement with France, and France would go and go, oh, okay, and then give four days off a week. I mean, it was right. And, and And we were trying to promote freedom, and this was our uh, – we're, we're still operating on the principle that it's 1945, and the communists are going to take over Western Europe and the rest of the world, and we better build these countries up and help them become middle class – uh, capitalist countries and that's why we had that trade policy of we will give them our industries we will give them access to our markets we'll let them sell stuff in America even if they won't let us sell our stuff in their countries because they'll get rich and as they get rich they'll become more democratic and everything will be great and it worked great it worked it worked very well in Western Europe it worked well in East Asia with Japan and Korea and Taiwan and uh, to a certain degree agree with Indonesia, but uh, that was 70 years ago. The war's been over for a long time, and right. uh, these countries are quite wealthy. Then, then we diluted our, it became an end in itself. It's like, right. oh, well, we're just going right. to build a global economy, and there is no more Cold War, but it's just such a great idea. Let's keep doing it, and China will become democratic. Well, that's where we really fell down. But well, that, was Nixon's dream. that was Nixon's dream. But right. Even, even if we do even if Trump and his administration follow through with this pressure on China 
to stop the intellectual property theft, to stop doing espionage through their private sector, supposedly, right, with uh, big quotation marks, and to actually buy produce from our farmers, like soybeans and such, they still have a really big um, advantage that they have state-sponsored industries. How does the U.S. compete with those industries? For example, like rare earth metal, that as Helicom. you know, the Chinese Helicom. have been making a big problem for the U.S. And the Trump administration seems to think that the private sector should be able to straighten that out once they hold the Chinese back. How right, that you raise a very good point. I mean, this is this is the reality that must be confronted. Uh, for for so long, we were operating under the delusion, this um, sort of magic fairy dust theory, that if we just act like free traders, if we act like free markets, that we believe in free markets and you know, free trade, and we will drop our tariffs and provide access to our market. That will be a shining example, and the other parties will do that too. And the other people on the other side of the trading arrangement will do the same thing because they'll be so inspired by our unilateral surrender of protection that they are going to just feel shamed, I guess, into doing the same. That hasn't happened. It doesn't work out. Never works that they way. Have, they have no shame. They have no shame. And actually, economic theory tells you the tariffs work would are, are really the best way to go as long as the other side doesn't retaliate with tariffs. And if we announce ahead of time, we will never put tariffs on because uh, David Ricardo or something I learned in school at Harvard tells me that I should never put tariffs and they're just bad, bad, bad. If we announce that to the world, we're basically giving the other side the assurance they need to go ahead and put tariffs on. You and that's what happened. Me, Curtis, I'm, 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 I'm One of our curious. strongest allies, by the way, the thoughts. Israel charges tariffs on almost all U.S. products from... Oh, I don't know if people know this. I actually once put kind of Mnuchin on the spot. If I, I, don't I was remember, there. I was there. Do you remember I was, that? <laughs> I was standing right next to you. It was at it was at the uh, it was at the inauguration party in the Trump Hotel, and you walked right over and went, "Can you like ask the president to start slapping tariffs on Israel these cars?" He jaw dropped. Two two Orthodox Jewish guys walk over to him and go. You know, what's going on in Israel is just not fair to the American car industry. And he's, he, just, he didn't know how to respond. Um, yeah, sure he didn't. Chinese competition. They have this, this uh, so, I don't even know what they call that Chinese vehicle that sells I, in Israel. I can't pronounce it. it, it uh, these, co these companies, I go to Israel to rent the car, and they're like, we're giving you a shush. I, I'm looking at it and going, what is that? I don't know what that is. <laughs> I, you, they give you a name of a car. I've never heard of it in my life. Right. So, but as to your point, what you were saying about rare earth. So, so we had this, uh, we, we had this fantasy that if, if we are the, the cleanest driven snow purists on free market theory, everybody is going to come along and be just like us. Well, it, it, and that proved to be a failure. Similarly, the next 
the next idol that will fall, the next idol that will be toppled, is this idea that uh, free markets automatically prevail and, and work everything out. And that in the case of 5G or in the case of rare earths, we need to, right now China has pretty much a corner on the rare earth market. And Huawei, the telecom company, is a leader in 5G. Now, so in one case with rare earths, they control the market. They, the, the global supply of these rare earth elements, which are used in advanced electronics, iPhones, superconducting magnets, things like that, defense applications, all that good stuff, high-value stuff, advanced manufacturing. China mm -hmm. controls, has a controlling uh, controlling uh, market share, dominant market share. And it just so happens that Xi Jinping's relatives are major investors and, and own, run the company, the Chinese company that does the rare earth mining. What a coincidence. Now, uh, so you've got a Chinese government subsidized company producing this product, the rare earth elements. With Huawei, you've got a government subsidized company pushing 5G. And now the way internet stuff goes, there's really only one winner. The winner takes all. Whoever gets uh, to 5G, yep. there is no number two. There is no second place or third place, right? There's like one... Unless, uh, unless we skip that, unless we do a hop... A, 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 a hop skip, which happens in technology, and go to you go to Japan. Japan's on like 27th G because they have a whole different G stretch um, structure. But, right. But 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 we can we can in theory go to Japan, and because they're they're way above 5G right now in Japan, way above, way yeah. above. They, they, yeah. They, what we're going to be getting to in 5G, Japan has had for years already. We could in theory skip over 5G and go to six. And that's what China's trying to do is, uh, for example, in the automotive industry, they are looking at electric vehicles. They're, somebody, a, a Chinese person was telling me that Chinese philosophy is pass on the curve, overtake on the curve. So right. as we switch from one generation to the next generation, that's where you leapfrog over. They're not trying to catch up and build steam engines, and then from steam engines they're going to go to internal combustion engines. They're going right to electric engines, electric so propulsion vehicles. So anyway, my point back to the uh, 5G and the rare earths is uh, we, if we're competing, if I'm an investor and I know my, the biggest competitor that this – I'm thinking of making an investment in a company that's going to do rare earths or is going to do 5G, and I see that the other competitor that I'm, I will be up against a competitor that's being subsidized by a government, by the Chinese government, you know, not the Liechtenstein government, but the Chinese government, by some measures the largest economy in the world, I'm going to say, why would I invest my money in, in, in someone's going to be competing against the five million pound gorilla here. So the whole idea, this conception that free markets automatically triumph over state-controlled entities is, is naive at best, misguided, and, and, and dangerous delusion. So what's the solution? Is the, solution the solution is to have an industrial policy and have some degree of government uh, intervention government uh, guardrails and safeguards that will, uh, that, that will 
incentivize and protect the investors and make it feasible to have private investment in these fields. If you are, and this is the way America had, has like always done business before. How do you so sell it to a guy like Nachman Mostovsky, who's like a bleeding heart political conservative? Like, like, how do you sell it to a person hearts. like that? We're, we're, we have stone cold <laughs> hearts. But no, my question is like, what? Well, you, so you would set up a, a deal with China saying if the Chinese government owns 51% of the business, then it gets tar- tariffed at 100%, and then if it's. You know, it, it goes well. Away. No, well, I would say this. I mean, look in the case of China with 5G. It's like uh, if you're going to do business with the United States of America, you can't buy Chinese telecom infrastructure. Period. Because any any information that passes over that goes well, we directly that into the Chinese things. military. So with, there you so go. Things, right? Don't we do that? What? We do that with like we do that with like train parts. You can't exactly. You can't, so what, exactly. Dual-use, dual, what's called dual-use technology or military-use technology, you can't export it. And on the, on the domestic front, you would say, well, uh, there are certain companies, uh, Qualcomm is one of them, that are involved in developing 5G, and you've got to give them some protection against antitrust. Uh, right now, the Federal Trade Commission is trying to break up Qualcomm, is, is, is really uh, threatening our national security because it's taking this fundamentalist libertarian approach of, of 19th century economic theory and applying it to the 21st century, and it's a misapplication. And, well, and a, completely blindered... To, Completely blinkered to the national security implications. It's a misapplication. It's also a misapplication because the people that are, f- are doing this don't understand technology. They actually right. only do. They only do one thing. They make chips. Now they have separate departments because the chips are different, but they make chips. That's all they do. And they have they have many many competitors. It's not like they have one. They have dozens of competitors. Right. Right. There's a competitor so, here look, in Brooklyn. Brooklyn yeah. has a chip manufacturing company. It's small. Really? Huh. Yeah. Yeah, I used to, I used to, I set up their uh, IT, uh, their network years ago. And, and you're not talking about poker chips? No, no, no. They, they, no. Make, they make wafer board. <laughs> they make wafer board. Okay. They, they, yeah. yeah. So now here's another thing. Um, throughout our history, we've done this, okay? Uh, the aviation industry was supported prospered and grew because of government airmail contracts. That was what nurtured the aviation industry in America. We would not have commercial aviation and the aerospace industry we have if it wasn't for government intervention. The Radio Corporation of America, RCA, was the government sat down and brought together uh, some of the leading entrepreneurs of the in in that nascent industry of radio communication telecommunications and said uh we've got this thing called the transatlantic cable uh we've got to make sure that they're not controlled by the british empire or by other europeans so i want you all to sit down knock it out mr sarnoff uh and and your competitors you're going to come to an agreement and you're going to uh we will now be dominant in this area uh, there's now. I'm not saying that that's the model to use, but I'm just saying well, RCA that was a that this company, though, wasn't it? It was a private company, but it had some degree of government protection, if you will, government uh, uh, incentives uh, 
to uh, they, they gave it the ability to grow to the uh, behemoth that it was. Uh, and, and in fact, it goes all the way back to the Marconi, the, right? the, Marconi. The, yeah, yeah. They didn't want Marconi controlling the this new technology, uh, so they wanted to have uh, an American presence in this new uh, this new sector. So it's very interesting. It goes all the way back to uh, the interchangeable parts, which was a uh, they called it the American system of manufacturing. Right. Uh, muskets used to be made by craftsmen. Every part was made by hand, and you know you had these skilled craftsmen that knew how to make uh, metal parts. And uh, a guy named Fulton, who later became famous for his steamboat, came up with this idea that what we'll do is we can produce interchangeable parts. We'll have uh, machine-made parts that are, are all, and we can dump them all in a bucket, and then you have a semi-skilled guy just assemble the different parts, and that will make the musket. And the United States government, the Continental Congress, or by that time it was the U.S. Congress, uh, gave this guy Fulton a contract to try out this new system of manufacturing. And that's what gave birth to the whole industrial uh, renaissance in America. Wow. So there's okay. always been a history of government uh, nurturing, government involvement, government encouragement, providing and it's not government control of industry. It's very you have to be very careful. It's, it's incentivizing. incentivizing and creating the conditions for private enterprise to flourish. And it also would also go to these you know the millionaires and the billionaires as 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 uh, some of our socialist uh, Americans <laughs> like to say. And try no, 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 hold it. The, the, the millionaires and the billionaires. The billionaires and the billionaires and the billionaires. So, <laughs> you know, when a president sits down... We're not going to let the millionaires and the billionaires profit off gotta, the people gotta, of this country. He's, he's a Brooklyn <laughs> Jew. you got to get rid of the R's. Millionaires and billionaires. There's no R at the end. It's, it's, oh, okay, thank you. So, so... But, when it's, but it's true. When the president sits down with a bunch of executives and says, listen, guys, America needs you to do this, there's a certain amount of patriotism that these guys eventually will, will, will be forced to actually stare in the face. And that's what happens when the president creates these, these um, what do they call them, blue ribbon uh, 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 groups. And, that's right, the, blue ribbon commissions. Yeah. Blue ribbon commissions. And they used to be used to do this stuff, and then they stopped. Under Clinton, they stopped. They started being used to, to as as gifts to people, as as to, to contributors. Oh, I'll stick you on this commission, and it will be because you gave me a thousand dollars. That's how it started. Right. Why they should be making the the White House should be making right now. It's critical time. Um, you saw that report that the president just recently um, called out to the Pentagon, right? Um, I think it was a writer's, where he basically said to the Pentagon that they have to find better sources for rare earth, for, of rare earths. Right. That's right. Um, so if he wants them to do that, they need to incentivize the American entrepreneurs to go... I mean, there are places sites. in the United States that have it. There are, of course. There's right now several sites. Um, one of them, as you know, Nachman, I'm personally working on, that yes. has within the, the, it some of the most critical elements and the large quantities of them, I would think the president should... And these, and these would be, by the way, these would be good jobs in America. I mean, 
Yeah, well, of yeah. course, it will create a new industrial boom in America if there would be a whole new mining industry. There's a lot of people that, unless, as Curtis can tell us, that were hurt from the mining and hurt in the mining, correct. hurting right now in the mining industry. This could create a whole new mining industry for the critical rare earths and other minerals like um, correct. lithium and, and beryllium. Correct. Right. Now, there used to be rare earth mines in the United States. The last one was closed, I believe it was in California. Yeah. And Molly Corpus, I believe. Pass, right? Wasn't it called Mountain Pass? Yeah. And when it was closed down, it was hit with a lot of EPA regulations and, and problems. Uh, it went into bankruptcy. Do they have an EPA China, in China? China Probably bought not. it and bought all the equipment, disassembled it, and moved it to China. So. Because, wow. they, because they have because they have an EPA in China. That, that, that yeah, right. right. They have an EPA yeah. like. Uh, Right. Yeah, yeah. It's EPA interesting because like, you know we're talking about you know about the rare earth metals and how that you know people don't realize that mining mining a rock out of the ground can actually have a huge impact on a cruiser in the middle of the Mediterranean when you know the Chinese government could basically turn one of our battleships off. But just today, it seems that the NSA created a new division. Are you aware of this? The Cybersecurity no. Directorate, which is actually it, it is going to be run by an Orthodox Jewish woman. Oh, yes, interesting. It was created hours ago. Um, she's actually coming off of the small, the NSA Russia small group. She ran that, and she has now been given the direction, the directorate of the Cybersecurity, um, which is unifying the NSA's foreign intelligence and cyber defense missions and is charged with preventing and eradicating threats to NSA, to the national security systems, and defense industrial base. So I have a feeling that this is going to be something that she is going to have to look into. Yeah, certainly. The defense industrial base has atrophied terribly. Uh, we are incapable of producing a lot of the critical parts for our weapon systems. We don't have the capacity to produce submarines at any rate. I think we can't make any more than two a year, and I'm not. Uh, that may even be an exaggeration. We don't well, have the, the basic. The reason that is why. Why? What's the reason? We outsource so much of our industry. Look, people joke when the president. People laugh when the president talks about the national security implications of automobile imports, right? And they say, oh, that's so funny. Uh, Mercedes, uh, a BMW is not going to uh, blow up uh, the White House. So there is no, we don't have to worry about being, you know, bombed by, uh, by, uh, by Toyotas. I live in Brooklyn. I know exactly what you're about to say. Well, the point is Brooklyn. that, what? Go ahead. The Brooklyn Navy Yard is, is not far from me. They were able to retool all the machinery for World War II within... Exactly, exactly. And even to this day, the, the type of machining and uh, casting of metals and the, the, what's called foundry, the foundry capacity and whatnot, that the defense industries depend on, you can't support it entirely on the limited type of production, the small production runs that go into defense contracting and defense procurement. You need to have commercial applications for it to keep those industries alive. And, and that that's what automobiles do. And golf yeah. you go to war, you retool, it's just retooling. The machine that makes a door to a Chevy uh, 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 car can go and make a door to a tank. It's the That's same. right. And the machine that makes the door to a car will make the wing of an airplane. Uh, right. 
not not exactly I mean, that, that that's not literally true but that's the idea and you can't keep that machine going by the few wings of an aircraft of an airplane that you make in a normal year outside of war but you don't want to lose the ability to make airplane wings so you better have an automobile industry so how do we do to this? keep let's, that let's the answer well, the answer is not to give away access to our market willy-nilly the way we've done. And it's gone beyond just giving away access to our market. How do we get it back? Uh, well, that's part, of, that, that's part of the tariff scheme. That's part of the tariffs. Look, the, it's, it suddenly became fashionable after 2000 when we opened up our trade with China for every, country, every company in America to close down its American factory and open one in China. And we lost tremendous uh, defense, uh, pardon me, defense, not just defense, we lost tremendous industrial capacity as a result. So part of the way we get it back is through old-fashioned patriotism and also making it unprofitable to do business in China. That's why the president has the four-part plan, tax cuts, regulation cuts, energy reform and trade reform. Put the four of them together and it becomes profitable and make sense to do business in America again. Yeah, you were seeing we're seeing businesses come back to America just on just because of the the, the ridiculous taxes and 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 and, and uh, regulation that's being removed from them. They're coming back exactly, if exactly. And if he keeps going on this, we'll see more of it. We keep we're going in the right direction now. Finally, we should have started this 30 years ago. But you know, better better late than never. So you think you think you think that Curtis will end up seeing the president putting tariffs on rare earths too? Well, we can't because we don't have another source for them at the moment. United States, United right. Mexico, and the United States. Canada has it also, don't they? How do we incentive? What would be, in your opinion, like just like right off the cuff, like an incentive to get the? I would say fast track. Really... I would say an incentive would be to fast track the permitting for these uh right now i don't know what kind of environmental assessment reports need to be made you would want to fast track that you would want to what have like some federal guaranteed loans and grants the, the president is able to actually forget fast track he can actually remove them completely in national emergency can he right i believe he could yes you could use the uh, international emergency yes. economic powers act aipa he can he can basically have we could be mining this stuff within 48 hours if you want. Right. And you would want to have, I, I would think, uh, there is some environmental concerns in the mining process. I think if you had a, a, a reasonable proposal uh, to, to show that there wouldn't be, you know, we're just going to dump toxic waste uh, next, to a, uh, next to a nursery school, uh, <laughs> there would be, uh, the government would be able to, uh, in good conscience, uh, yes, provide right. some type of uh, uh, immunity to lawsuits or something like that. But uh, exactly using IEPA, as, as you said, using the president's emergency powers, uh, you could fast track the permitting process and then uh, and provide uh, a degree of uh, certainty against uh, endless litigation uh, surrounding the uh, creation and the operation of the, of the rare facility. 
And then the other thing, too, would be a guaranteed market at the other end where uh, the U.S. military or any contractor using U.S. federal tax dollars uh, would be uh, required. Would have to use an American supplier. Exactly. Would have to source the rare earth from the American supplier. Okay. Well, we're looking forward to continuing to hear from you, Curtis. It's really... from what I understand, uh, we're, we have a delegation going to China, I think, this, in the next few days. So maybe once this is all wrapped up, we can have you on again to explain what, the, the, the new uh, deal. Cause it looks like they have one ready now, it seems. Uh, it seems Trump is sending a delegation. So I guess, I guess they, they're, 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 they're working on a deal. So thank you so much for being on. We greatly, greatly appreciate it. I think we may have actually lost... Mr. Ellis, but uh, anyway, it was really awesome having him on. He's truly uh, a, a resource for us, and truly, just that was just I was just listening, and it was so educational. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was. We don't usually have we don't usually have um, um, people on the air for this long, but this is uh, people understand who this guy is. He's like one of the top advisors um, on on China in the country. There's, there's, there's not He's that many Barney people. A lot, by the way. He, there's not that many people in in the world that probably understand American economic systems versus the Chinese economic system as this guy does. It's, it's, it's a a real um, uh, treat to have him on. For this. I mean, he just gave an almost an hour of his time. Um, greatly, greatly appreciate it. Um, uh, I do want to end with one other thing that I saw this week. I, I know we wanted to talk about it, but uh, that conversation ran a little long, and I know there's not much of a segue here. But we did talk earlier about the police and how they were treated. Did you see um, the video of Erica Thomas Cobb the, uh, in Georgia? The, the, um, she's a state representative. I'm not sure if that's their version of the Senate or the Assembly. I think it's their Assembly like we have in New York and New Jersey um, and in some of the other states. They, some states are upper chamber, lower chamber. Some states have state representatives and, and state uh, other, other titles. Some states have senates and, 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 and assemblies. So she went, she went on this, this crying tirade in her car about how she was just told by a white man to go back to the country where she came from. Now, this lady ends up being a state representative. And who's the guy she's talking about? A Cuban Democrat in Georgia. This guy goes in front of her, goes out and has a press conference in front, what seems to be in front of her office. <laughs> she comes out, starts yelling at him. She basically admits that he never said it. He did use a swear word, but that's about all. It ends up she was on the, which, the express lane with 20-some-odd items. She says she would show the receipt. And then we says when he challenges her and said, "Yes, yeah, show it. Go ahead and show it. Show everybody how you have 20 to 25 items." But she was saying she only had 11. She's like, "Well, that's that's beside the point. Everything was beside the point." When he says, "I'm not white, I'm Cuban," she says, "That's beside the point." When he says, "I'm a Democrat," he even says later on, "For all I know, I vote for her because I just vote straight Democrat. And if she's my representative, then I voted for her, and I'll continue to vote for her because she's a Democrat," which just shows you the amount of stupidity that these people have. You would vote for somebody that just called you a white supremacist when you're a Cuban Democrat. Because they're Democrats. I, the insanity of these people. And then... I don't know, I'm not with you, I respect them. 
You do? You respect them. Why? I respect, that. I respect how loyal they are to their beliefs. Oh, their loyalty. You respect their loyalty. Okay. Okay. I, I hear I, it. I wish, I wish they, like, the Never Trump repeat, like, crowd, like, I'll never understand them. But you at least respect them then, right? Um, I, no, I think that they're not loyal Wait, to the Wait, you cause. don't respect, but what do you mean? You, 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 what's, oh, what's you're the, saying the, they're no, not loyal. Their hate, their hatred for Trump is a No, but their loyalty they feel is to the conservative movement. But, the, but, but the, the they're the willing to throw the entire conservative movement under the bus and bring in a Democrat. Nachman, doesn't really add up. I, I hear that. I hear that. I hear that. But then, you know, there, there's the, 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 what's it called of, you know, there's a difference between, you know, I think Ben Shapiro used this back during the election, um, um, where, where he saw, he, he didn't see a, conser- a future conservative Trump. He didn't see that. And uh, he said, not, you know. He's it, not always right. <laughs> I'm not saying he is. He was wrong. So was I. Um, and, and, but, but, but at the time, I think he was right. Whereas when you're driving a car over a cliff and you're, and you're, and you're, and you're, and you're you know, hitting the brake and hitting the brake and hitting the brake, which is what the conservatives saw what was going on, and, and you know, to, to disconnecting the, dry, the, 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 the brake shaft and throwing it out the window is not necessarily the response that you want. Now, it just so happens that Trump has probably been one of the most conservative presidents possibly since Coolidge now. I, I, I don't know. There's going to have to, you know, um, uh, conservative scientists are going to have to take a look at the things that Trump has done versus things that Reagan has done. Obviously, the, the, the you know, Reagan had a much different Washington, D.C. to deal with. He had a, a, a Democrat party that knew how to fight back then, um, and he did not control Congress. So he did everything that he can by being the first conservative in 70 years. Um, Trump had, a conserva- had conservatives in Congress. Reagan really didn't. Even the Republicans were completely controlled at the time by, this, by, the, by the Rockefeller Republicans. Um, there were very, very few um, conservatives. Um, Ron Paul was considered one of the conservatives that he had to work with. So just to understand what he had to deal with, and Ron Paul was, was a lunatic libertarian. Uh, his son Rand is more conservative. Um, so um, John McCain, you want to talk about the conservatives that he had to deal with? John McCain was a conservative. Think about that. John mm-hmm. McCain was one of the conservatives that he considered he, he would work with. So, so you know, I, 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 I do think that you are right. I think some of these Republicans need to start circling the wagons as we need to go into this 2020 campaign because if you thought – 2016 was crazy. 2020 is going to be insane. Yeah, um, we haven't seen anything yet. I mean, yeah, you haven't because 2016 you didn't have Rashida Tlaib, AOC, um, and and uh, 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 the rest of these clowns pushing the Democrats into the abyss of progressivism. Um, you know, when Bernie Sanders is is starting to look like a moderate, you know, you have a, a problem in the Democrat Party. Um, it's 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 a big problem. It's a big big problem. I mean, you got Kamala Harris taking Bernie Sanders' turning, talking points and going to the left. It's wild what's going on over there. So um, you know, with this, you know, we'll we'll, we'll end our our segment. So, you know, just there was a a, a a thought for people to, to 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 out there that you know maybe they should learn from these Democrats that 
They'll even vote for somebody calling them a white supremacist when they're a Cuban national and when, when, they're, when they're descendants from Cubans and, and vote Democrat. And they st- the guy says on video, after being challenged by her, where she walks away, he says, maybe I voted for her, and if she's in my district, I'll continue to vote for her because they don't actually look who they're voting for. Now, I'm not saying, you know, conservatives and Republicans are a little more educated when it comes to voting. The studies have shown this which is why we're a little bit harder to corral when it comes to election day. But you're right. If it's, if it's Kamala Harris versus Donald Trump and you're a hardcore never Trumper, do you ever see a Kamala Harris presidency being good for us? Like how? How is exactly. it ever good? People need to like ask themselves a question once and for all. Whose side are they on? What do they care more about this country? their ego, or the future of this country. I agree. And with that, we'll bid everybody a good night. Thank you so much, You've been listening to The Moss Show. Broadcasted from the Socialist Republic of New York. But please, don't tell our governor he asked us to leave. They have no place in the state of New York. Tune in again next week, Tuesday at 9 p.m. Eastern. Or go to J Tribe Radio to listen to the podcast anytime on Play, iTunes, and Stitcher.